Welcome to the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum podcast. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire from ToLoveHonorAndVacuum.com, where we like to talk about how to make sex into a passionate adventure and not just something on your to-do list. And today I am coming to you from my closed closet as usual because the sound is better in here and we're still trying to work on getting our studio better, but I'm not going to be on YouTube. So this week's podcast is only for audio because I'm doing it myself and Rebecca's not with me and I want to get really controversial and it just works out better this way. So here we go. We are going to talk about three big things that I am a little bit upset about and I would really like us to think through more clearly. One is how can we learn to be content in our sex life? One is, is talking really the equivalent to having sex? Because women are told that a lot. You can't expect him to talk to you if you don't have sex with him. And the last one is, should we really be treating all divorces as if they're a scandal? So we're going to go through these one by one and let's get going. What I want to start off by saying that was a little bit of a caveat. If there is a spectrum from A to Z and you say that Z is wrong, people often assume that you're then arguing for A. But what if you're actually arguing for M? (laughs) And that I think is what is happening is when I try to make an argument for M, when I try to say we need to meet in the middle, people assume that I'm arguing on the far spectrum and I'm not. And so I want us to, to really think about how we can find this middle ground where both people have to give a little bit because I think we reflexively hate the thought that we have to be giving in a relationship and we find it much easier to put the blame entirely on someone else. So let's aim for that middle as we think through these issues today, okay? All right. Now, I have spent a lot of time on the blog arguing for, let's say, point A on that spectrum. And let's say that point A is women need to see sex differently. You need to see sex as a positive thing if you're going to enjoy sex. And so for pity's sake, try to change your attitude towards sex. You really owe this to yourself, to your husband, to your marriage, everything. And this was a large part of what I talked about in Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage when I shared about my own journey and how sex was just terrible for a long time. And it wasn't until I challenged the way I was thinking about sex and I realized that, okay, hold on a second. If God made sex to be a gift and if God made sex to be awesome, then I really don't want to miss out on that. And even if I don't understand how sex can be good right now, even if that doesn't compute to me in the least, I am going to believe that God made sex to be amazing. And I'm going to make it my mission to figure that out. And when I started thinking differently about sex, sex really did change. And so, yes, a lot of what we women have to do is we need to think differently. It's why I wrote The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex, so that women can understand that God made sex for you, that we're designed to be passionate, that sex is designed to be pleasurable, that we're not an afterthought, that sex isn't just for guys, it is for you. It's why I wrote 31 Days to Great Sex, which is a wonderful challenge that you can do as a couple to help you awaken passion in your marriage. I even have like a free sex pep talk course you can take. I will put a link in the description of this podcast. It's a free email course. I will send you some pep talks on how you can start thinking differently about sex. And right now, as we speak, I am working on an orgasm course that can help women overcome some of the roadblocks to sexual response and help you experience orgasm. So I've been arguing this for such a long time. I've been arguing, hey, women, you need to see sex differently. 
You can't have a good sex life if you're seeing sex in a negative light. And I I know that tragically, a lot of us see sex very negatively for very good reasons. Many of us are abuse survivors, or we were assaulted when we were older. And that's a big trauma to get over. When trauma like that affects us, and sexual trauma affects us at a level that no other trauma does, because sexual trauma is a rejection of you as a person. It's saying, I am allowed to use you. You don't matter. And when that happens, of course, we're going to feel trauma. And we do need to work on that. Please, if that's your story, see a licensed counselor who is trained in evidence-based trauma therapies, because there are some out there. So please, I know how important it is to separate out what God intended from sex with what has happened to us. (laughs) And I know that that isn't always an easy thing, but I have been talking about this a lot. I have been calling for this. I have been saying, come on, people, you don't want to settle for less than God intended for you. But, and here's the big but, that being said, there is another side to it. And this is what I tried to address on Tuesday on the blog. And and a lot of commenters really got it. We, I had some really interesting discussions in the comments, but there was also a lot of pushback. And so I, I want to go into this again. What I was arguing on Tuesday was this. And again, of course, I will put a link in the podcast description to this podcast to that post. But I was asking higher drive spouses If you are getting sex at least once a week and even two or three times a week, can you be content with your sex life? Like if your spouse is enjoying sex and you are having sex with relative frequency, can you be content? I wasn't addressing marriages where sex was less than once a week, where sex was really infrequent. That wasn't what I was talking about. I was talking about this phenomenon that I've seen come up again and again in the comments in the last few weeks. It seems to be coming up quite a bit and in emails that have been sent to me from women especially where they are having sex two to three times a week. And in many cases, she's even orgasming, but he is still not happy and he is constantly criticizing. I'll read you just a couple of those comments. You know, one woman said, I feel that I'm treading a fine line in our sex life, being satisfying enough for my husband. He's the higher drive spouse. And even though we have sex two to three times a week, he'd prefer more. And he'd prefer us to be more varied and spontaneous than I feel able to be. So I often feel that I should provide an alternative if I'm too tired or not feeling well enough to have intercourse. I do orgasm through clitoral stimulation almost every time, but I think that with the frequency, we rarely leave it long enough for me to notice if I myself actually desire sex. So it's hard to note my own natural libido or desire and stop it from feeling like a duty. And she goes on to say that her husband does make her feel badly for this, like she's not performing. Another woman said, when we first got married, it was overwhelming because I did enjoy having sex, but it always felt like there were these comments or borderline complaints. The biggest complaints were he would tell me that he wished the sex had been longer and he wished we would have it more often. And I felt like my comments were always opposite. I felt like it was plenty long enough. I don't have the time or energy for two plus hours of sex. And we were having sex at least every other day at first with the complaints of how often came a pressure that made me less interested. And then there was a man who uh, had been married for quite a few decades who was talking about how early in their marriage, they had been having sex two to three times a week and the wife had been orgasming, but he just wasn't happy. And he would say, isn't this wonderful? Like, don't you want this more? Why can't we have this more? I just want, I just want to feel close to you. Why can't we be closer? And she eventually just gave up. 
And I think that what people don't understand is that constant criticism, constant complaints, constant discontentment can make somebody really resent sex and can actually create a situation where your marriage becomes almost sexless or when sex becomes very infrequent. Because even if they were enjoying sex, you don't want to do something where every time you do it, you get complaints. It just becomes really demoralizing. Another woman said this in the comments. When we were first married, I begged my husband to slow things down, to give me some time to figure out what feels good. He told me he was afraid he couldn't keep an erection that long. And if we didn't keep going, I would change my mind and the sexual encounter would end. I tried to explain the latter was a self-fulfilling prophecy. If we didn't slow down, then sex would end. But not even six months of therapy could fix this. A decade later, it's not uncommon for us to go six months to a year or more without sex. There's absolutely zero attempt to make it feel good for me. Even lubrication to avoid it feeling painful is met with complaint because we have to stop to apply it. Thinking back, the complaint started on our honeymoon. I remember our fifth day of marriage, bloodied sheets and me being so sore and him whining the next day because I was still sore and it's our honeymoon. I love my husband and would love to have an active, mutually satisfying sex life, but I feel like I'm married to two men, and the man that comes to bed with me is not the loving, generous, protective man I live with outside the bedroom. That same man who would deliver daily shoulder massages while watching TV cannot fathom the benefits of massage when the lights go out. Okay, do you see what I'm talking about? Now, here's a woman who, for whom sex hasn't felt good, and he's complaining. And that's, you know, that's an even bigger issue. But most women take a while to get used to sex in marriage. Most women take a while to learn how to orgasm. In the Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex and the initial um, surveys that I did, the best years for sex in marriage, the years when women were most likely to reach orgasm, were years 16 to 24. It wasn't in the honeymoon years. Now, I really do want to make that faster. I don't think any woman should have to wait 16 years to orgasm, which is why I'm working on this orgasm course right now that I hope that will be out around mid-October. But you know, it takes a while for many women to get sex working like clockwork. We're not as familiar with how our bodies work as men are because most of our stuff is internal. It's not external. Like guys' stuff is just there. <laughs> they kind of know all about it. Women don't. And our sexual response is very different. And so it does take a while. But if he sees sex as an entitlement or if he sees sex as something which he just absolutely needs and he can't be happy without then the focus becomes on him and not on her and not on them as a couple. And even if you feel like, well, no, it is about her. I just want to know her better. I just want to experience more intimacy with her. This is how I experience intimacy. This is how I feel close to her. I just want to feel close to my wife. I get that. I really do. But intimacy and knowing someone is also about taking into account their feelings. And if they're saying, I enjoy sex with you, but I would prefer two or three times a week. And you're saying, but then I don't really know you and I can't be intimate with you. Then you're not accepting of them. <laughs> because being intimate and truly knowing someone does mean that you take them into consideration as well. And so, you know, the average, the average couple has sex slightly over once a week. I'm not saying we should aim for average, all right? I really believe we should aim for the stars. I think frequent sex is much better than infrequent sex. I think that our sex lives should be passionate. But I am also seeing this pattern where people are discontented, even when their sex lives are objectively pretty good. And that discontentment 
when expressed over a long period of time, eventually kills your spouse's libido. I want to repeat that, all right? (laughs) That discontentment, when expressed over a long period of time, eventually kills your spouse's libido. Now, please hear me because I am not saying that you can't spice things up or make things better. I mean, I wrote 24 sexy dares for pity's sake, like 24 fun dares you can do as a couple to spice things up. But there's a world of difference between looking into these things out of a place of contentment, love and acceptance and looking into them because you're criticizing your spouse or you're in a state of constant discontentment. So let's just talk contentment for a minute, okay? If we look at the broader Christian life, we do think about contentment a lot. You know, we're okay trying to be content with God's will for our lives, with our jobs, with our financial situation, with our lifestyle. We know that we're supposed to fight that idea that we need more and more and more to be happy. We know that there's more to life than this. We know where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. We know that we're supposed to put our contentment in Jesus. But somehow, when it comes to sex, we feel as if we can't be happy unless we have absolutely everything we want. I don't know why there's that disconnect, but with sex, it seems like contentment doesn't come into play. And I think it's because we've been taught that unless you're sexually fulfilled, by which we mean you're getting everything you want sexually, then you're not being true to yourself. And so You can't be true to yourself unless you get everything you want. I was talking to my ministry director, Tammy, about this, Tammy, who works with me, and we're exactly the same age. We've been married the same amount of time. We're we're both going to be 30 years married next year. And I said, I said this, you know, if I thought about it, could we improve our sex life? And, and certainly, you know, there's things that we could do. Are there things that I want more or less of? Yeah, probably there are. But here's the thing. I don't tend to think in those terms. I just don't. I tend to think more in terms of, do we feel close? Are we having fun? Are we enjoying each other? And that's the point. It's not just physical, you see. It's about us as a couple. And sure, you know, there's times you're going to go away for the weekend and you're going to really look at how to spice things up. Or, you know, you might have a month where you do super spicy things or whatever. You know, you might have a month where you devote it to rediscovering each other or something like that. But in general, I'm just saying we're focused as a couple on how we feel close. Are we having fun together? Are we enjoying each other? And we don't ask, am I getting everything sexually that I want? Because sex is not about me and what I want. Sex is about us as a couple. And when you think about it in those terms, contentment just seems easier. And the other stuff doesn't seem to register in the same way. Criticism and disappointment really kills sex. And as Tammy and I were talking about this, another thought that was brought up that's often expressed in Christian books, and this is where I really want to turn to now, is how would women feel if he decided to only talk to you once a week? Have you ever heard that? I know I know it's said in a lot of Christian books that the idea that men talking to women is the equivalent of women having sex to men. The idea that men interpret sex in the same way that women interpret talking. And so when women don't have sex with their husbands, it's as if the man isn't talking to the woman. They're seen as equivalent. You shouldn't expect him to talk to you if you don't have sex with him. We had a commenter say that to men, talking is often as difficult as sex is for women. 
And so what that is saying, what all of these books are saying, what this commenter is saying, what the general zeitgeist of all this stuff is saying is that talking and emotional connection are the equivalent of sex. Okay. Now here's this spectrum A to Z thing again. I'm going to argue Z. That doesn't mean I believe A. It means I believe M. All right. So I might, I'm going to argue Z, but I'm not arguing that the opposite is true. I'm just saying Z isn't true. Okay. Okay. So here we go. <laughs> I do believe that a good sex life often smooths the way to emotional intimacy. I think emotional intimacy and sex are kind of like the chicken and the egg. And I talked about this in the Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex. Like you don't know which one feeds the other, but they do feed each other. And it is really difficult to maintain emotional intimacy in a marriage where there is no sex. In a good marriage, sex will often be the fuel for emotional intimacy, all of that. But nevertheless, <laughs> I do not think emotional intimacy and sex are equivalent. So I am not saying that sex isn't important. I'm not saying that sex can't make you closer. I'm not saying that men don't feel more close after sex than they did before. And many women, by the way, feel closer after sex than they did before as well. All I'm arguing here is that we've got a bit of a false equivalency. <laughs> and by using that false equivalency so much, I think we're killing women's libidos because we're telling women that intimacy doesn't matter. And that's a problem. So let's, let's look at this false equivalency and we'll see where I'm going with this. Okay. There is a guy named Maslow and in Psychology 101, any of you who ever took it will remember Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And what he said is that humans have this pyramid of needs and the most basic needs, the ones on the bottom of the pyramid, they have to be met first before we can bother trying to meet the higher needs. So your basic needs like food and water and shelter and safety, you need to meet those needs before you meet the needs for relationship and for belonging and before you meet those needs of self-actualization, you know, of being all that you can be, of discovering who you are as a person. You don't really care about your relationship with your toxic sister-in-law and how to fix it if you're being chased by a bear, okay? Like there's certain needs that are going to take priority and when those needs aren't met, you really can't look into those higher needs. So we need to meet the most basic needs first. And so what he's really saying is just because you have a need does not mean that all needs are equal. So take oxygen, water, and food. Humans need all three. We do, but we don't need them with the same urgency or the same frequency. You'll die in a few minutes without oxygen. You'll die in a few days without water, but you can go for like almost two months without food. <laughs> so we need all three, but we don't need all three in the same way. We use the word need and it makes it sound like things are equivalent that really aren't. Nobody has ever died from lack of sex. They don't. They just don't. People have, however, died or gone crazy from a lack of talking and a lack of emotional connection. And we know this from some of the horrible stories coming out of the Romanian orphanages. Remember that? The babies who never were able to learn to talk simply because they hadn't had any physical contact for the first year of life and they were basically ignored. They may have had diapers changed and they may have had food shoved in them, but they were never cradled. They were never talked to. And those babies never developed. We know from solitary confinement in prisons and during war that that's a form of torture and humans can just go crazy. <laughs> like you just lose it. We need connection in a way that we do not need sex. Okay. Again, I'm not saying sex isn't important. I'm just saying they're not at the same level. <laughs> now let's look at it another way. So that's, that's number one. The needs are not at the same level. Here's number two. 
You can be perfectly emotionally healthy, sexually healthy, and in a healthy relationship and still not want sex right now. You may have pain during sex. You may be exhausted. You might have a migraine. You might be going through stress. You might be going through grief. I mean, there are things which might stop us from wanting sex that do not mean we're not in an emotionally healthy place. They don't mean there's anything wrong with the relationship. You know, they don't mean that there's anything wrong with us in a sexual way either. We just simply have a roadblock right now that's temporary and we just can't do it right now. There is no situation, however, where you are perfectly emotionally healthy and relationship healthy and you don't want to emotionally connect or you can't talk. Like in marriage counseling, even in the worst marriages, (laughs) there are many times where they might tell you that you can't have sex for a while, that you have to take a hiatus from sex, but they never tell you that you can't talk. Talking is, is fundamental. And to not talk, to not emotionally connect is a sign that a relationship is not healthy. But to not have sex occasionally is not a sign of that. It really isn't. I mean, think about how God made us. Women need to concentrate in order to feel pleasure. Sex does take effort. It takes time. You know, talking takes a second. Great sex takes usually at least 20 minutes, you know, 15 to 20 minutes at least. It takes time. It takes clear mind space. It takes energy. Talking doesn't. So they just aren't equivalent. But there's one more thing, and this is actually the most important one that I want to address. Just because some men find it very difficult to talk or emotionally connect does not mean that those men are healthy. Okay, this is often used to say, well, women can't expect to talk if we don't have sex, but a man not wanting to emotionally connect or not being able to talk to you is not actually a sign of emotional health. And it isn't the equivalent of a woman not wanting sex because she has a migraine or she's exhausted or she's stressed. Okay, I'm not talking about introvert extrovert here. Introverts can be just as emotionally healthy as extroverts and extroverts can be just as emotionally unhealthy as some introverts. It's not about how much you talk. It's about the fact that you connect. You know, the Bible tells us to be like Jesus, right? The Bible tells us to walk in his steps, to emulate Jesus. We are supposed to be like Christ. He is the one that we're supposed to model our life after. And Jesus was vulnerable with people. Jesus expressed a wide range of emotions. He laughed. He enjoyed people. Why do you think prostitutes and sinners liked hanging out with him? It was because he knew how to have a good time, okay? He laughed. He enjoyed people. He got to know them. He also expressed a lot of anger. He expressed a lot of sorrow. He expressed grief. He expressed the whole gamut of emotions. And he did this in front of people. He wasn't embarrassed of his emotions, (laughs) Jesus emotionally connected with people. And this is what health is. We often think that this is feminine, that it's feminine to express emotion and it's masculine to take away emotion or to hide emotion as if, well, women can't expect men to be emotional. And I would argue that that's not actually the case. Jesus was masculine and he expressed a lot of emotion. Emotion is not a feminine thing. And this idea that men can be considered healthy even if they can't express emotion or if they have a hard time being intimate, is simply not right. We need to raise our boys to be able to be intimate and to express emotion. It isn't healthy to have men who aren't able to connect or express emotion. It really isn't. You know, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, I spent a lot of time telling women to see sex in a positive way. And so let me just do the same thing here. It is no excuse, guys, 
if you don't feel comfortable talking. You need to figure out why you don't feel comfortable because you were created for intimacy, for emotional connection with people far more than you were created for sex. And sex is not a substitute for emotional intimacy. It really isn't. Do you have attachment issues? That's a huge issue for a lot of people where we have insecure attachment with our parents initially and then we find it difficult to attach to others. And so sex becomes the way we attach instead of true vulnerability because we have a hard time being vulnerable. Jesus allowed himself to be vulnerable. Christ-like people, people who are involved in emulating Christ are going to allow themselves to be vulnerable. Paul writes in Romans 8.29 that, that we have been predestined to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Jesus showed emotion. It is not bad for you to show emotion. And the fact that you are not able to emotionally connect or be emotional is not an excuse. <laughs> Maybe you grew up feeling as if emotions were somehow bad because a lot of boys were taught that. You were taught you weren't supposed to cry. You were taught that there were only certain emotions that you were allowed to show. And incidentally, that's why so many people walk through life really angry because anger is often a secondary emotion. Not always, but quite often, because we're afraid of expressing rejection or fear or insecurity, we're not, we're not comfortable with those emotions. We instead express anger because it's a way to lash out and protect ourselves from these scarier emotions that we have that we're just not sure how to deal with and that make us feel very vulnerable. And Jesus is calling us to a greater level of vulnerability. Just because you're not comfortable with emotional intimacy does not give you an excuse to not go there. And so let me just wrap up this part. Just because some men have intimacy issues does not mean that women should be prepared to go without talking. Sex and talking and emotional intimacy are not the same thing. They really aren't. And so we need to see it differently. We shouldn't be saying, well, if you're only going to have sex with me twice a week, I'm only going to talk to you twice a week. That's just seeing sex so wrong and it's seeing intimacy so wrong. God created us with a need for connection and for intimacy. And that is met in a variety of ways. And in marriage, sexual intimacy is a huge part of that, but it is not the only part and it's not even the primary part. And that's not me saying that as a female, that's just simply studies that will show you <laughs> the relative difference in needs. Okay, you don't die from lack of sex, but people do die from lack of connection. And so we need to work on how to grow our ability to connect with people emotionally. So how about we all just strive to see sex in a positive light, okay? I still really do want women to see sex in a positive light and lower drive men to see sex in a positive light too, by the way. But we all strive to be content Okay, we all love each other, but also that we don't use the other person's actions as an excuse to not work on our own stuff. You should be able to emotionally connect and talk to your spouse. That's what being married is. That's what emotionally healthy people do. And if you're really struggling with this, a great book is by Mark Allen Shelsky. It's called The Wisdom of Your Heart. And it's all about emotion and the Bible and Jesus and how to open ourselves up to the emotions that we were told we weren't supposed to feel. Because I'm really, really tired of this false equivalency between intimacy and talking and sex. They aren't the same. They, the needs are not the same. And we need to talk about them differently because when we talk about it like that, what we're really saying to women is you can't expect him to be intimate if you are not willing to share your body. And, you know, being intimate and vulnerable is a prerequisite for a healthy relationship. 
And so let's not hang emotional intimacy over her head like the guillotine is going to fall. You know, if you don't have sex, you're not going to get what you need. And for her, let's not hang sex over his head. If you don't connect with me, you're not going to get sex. No, let's just work on seeing intimacy at all levels as a positive thing and taking responsibility for our own stuff. And let's not use anything as an excuse to live in emotional immaturity, whether it's about sex or emotions. All right. Okay. That being said, now let's switch gears to the third part of this talk, and it's about divorce. This week, the internet erupted when author Jen Hatmaker announced that she was getting a divorce. Now, I have never read Jen's books. I have never watched her HGTV show. I don't have a television, so I only stream stuff, so I don't even know what her show's about. I have never read an email by her. I've never been on her website. Like, I am not up on things Hatmaker. I really, I'm really not. I know she's a controversial figure in many Christian circles because of her take on LGBTQ issues. I also know that she's a tireless advocate for the marginalized, for Black Lives Matter, and for women, but I know absolutely nothing else about her other than that, okay? However, (laughs) I do believe that what's been done to her this week has been really wrong. And I think that that wrong goes beyond even Jen and her family. So this week, Jen announced on social media that she had been blindsided and that to her surprise, she and her husband, Brandon, would be getting a divorce. And she said on social media how she's been holed up at a cottage with her close friends and her kids as they try to process all this. So it seems, as much as I'm reading between the lines here, it seems at first glance that this is not something that she had been anticipating, but instead it took her by surprise, okay? But a big name blogger who writes about abuse issues and who I generally like, created a post about her divorce, framing it as a scandal. And she called Jen asking her for comment on this. And she talked about all the controversial things that Jen has ever said. And some controversial things that Jen said about her daughter and all kinds of stuff like that. And many on Twitter did the same thing. And here's what I want to say. To treat divorce like it is automatically a scandal is to shame anyone who has ever been divorced. And let me repeat that. To treat divorce like it is automatically a scandal is to shame anyone who has ever been divorced. Divorce is not a scandal. Divorce is not shameful. Divorce in many, many cases is not even sinful. Divorce instead is often the result of something that was scandalous and shameful and even sinful. But that does not mean that the scandal or the shame or the sin was equally shared or even shared at all. You know, we say all the time that it takes two to tango, but I don't think it does. Very often it does not take two to tango. I mean, in the Old Testament, God created a marriage covenant with Israel and Israel broke that covenant. God didn't do anything wrong, but Israel broke the covenant and then God issued a certificate of divorce. Like God was the injured party and you can have an injured party when it comes to divorce. But this isn't the way we talk about it in Christian circles. Last year, I kind of went ballistic on the blog because Focus on the Family published a book called How God Used the Other Woman, where a woman whose husband had had an affair talked about how understanding her role in that affair helped to save her marriage. And that is simply not true. And I wrote a number of posts on why that attitude is wrong and it isn't Christian. If you are having marriage problems, you can see a counselor, you can bring in a mentor, you can even choose to separate, but you don't choose an affair. 
Okay, that is on you. And yes, there might you, you may have contributed to marriage problems, but you didn't contribute to an affair. And when there has been an affair, that affair needs to be stopped, it needs to be repented of, it needs to be dealt with before you deal with the marriage issues because you can't deal with marriage issues without trust. When someone has broken the covenant, that is really serious. We need to see this in the proper way. And this is a really long argument and it is difficult and I'm not gonna try to rehash it in this podcast, but I will put a link to those articles when, where you can read them in more detail. And I've got a ton of scripture in there to show how God goes about forgiving and how God deals with covenants. And so we can look at the, you can look at those if you wanna go on some rabbit trails. But let's just bring it back to real life here, okay? I have close family members who have divorced because of a spouse's affair. And it was the spouse, by the way, in these cases who also initiated that divorce. Think about how it feels to them every time people treat a divorce like it's a scandal. Even though they did nothing wrong, they would have fought to save the marriage. The divorce was not what they wanted. They are still painted with a scarlet A. This is just so wrong. And then there are people who divorced because they were being abused. Okay, they divorced because their spouse was hurting them and they had a divorce to save themselves and now they're treated like that is a scandal that's just wrong there's so much more to most divorces than scandal and we need to stop blaming and we need to stop almost rejoicing in other people's pain because i really think there's a tendency to rejoice in the downfall of others when they don't match our political or doctrinal agenda you know what i mean i think i'm guilty of that I I know that there's times where when there's, especially in the church lately, where I've been very upset about what some preachers have been preaching, and then there's a scandal and they fall, and I feel a little bit of, of triumph there. And that isn't right. I need to stop doing that, okay? Because when when pastors fall, that is a big tragedy, and there's a lot of sheep in that church that are being hurt. But there is this tendency to rejoice, like, see, look, God is bringing judgment. And there's a tendency to just enjoy reveling in someone else's pain because you feel like you're more righteous or you're on the right side, you're on God's side. And we need to stop because you know what? Conservatives have affairs and liberals have affairs. Conservatives have divorced and liberals have divorced. So can we please stop with the shame of divorce when we don't know the whole story? It is not up to us to lay blame. Every divorce is a tragedy because it means that at least one person rejected relationship and intimacy, broke a covenant, and broke hearts. But some divorces are also necessary and some are actually life-saving. And then there are divorces that come out of left field and leave one person bruised and bleeding on the ground. Do we really want to stand over that person and beat them up too? Many who read my blog have been divorced Some have remarried, some have not. But the more I listen to people, the more I see that it does not take two to tango in many situations. It only takes one. So let's not automatically shame both, okay? That's just my plea. So those, that's a pretty heavy podcast. Thank you for listening. And I'm going to put links again to my free sex pep talk. If you are feeling badly about sex and you need to reframe the way you see sex, you can sign up for that and I will help you see sex differently. I will also put links to the posts about how we should handle affairs because that's really important. And I think a lot of Christians talk about this wrong. And I hope that in all of this, you realize I'm not arguing A 
just because I'm arguing against Z does not mean I'm arguing A, I'm arguing M. <laughs> I'm arguing for all of us to be a little bit more loving, to do a little bit more of our part, to not blame our problems on the other person, to not avoid doing the right thing because of the other person. But we still do need to own our part. And let's not ever make an excuse for immaturity, okay? Let's just not do that. Not cool, not Christ-like, not cool. So there you go. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire. This week, Rebecca, my daughter Rebecca is on vacation and my husband's working hard. So it's just me working. But next week, we will be back with a multi-person podcast. And again, join me at uh, lovehonorandvacuum.com as we talk about libido differences this month and leading up to the release of our orgasm course next month. Remember, if you like this podcast, please rate it a five star and leave a review. It helps other people find it. And it takes so little time and it makes me so happy. So thanks. And I will see you next week. 